We return to James, but we enter chapter 2, James chapter 2 this morning. As you're finding your place, I've been reminded this morning of a conversation recently had with a fellow pastor whose late elementary junior high son came to him and said, Dad, pastor said, yes, son. He said, I really feel bad. And his dad said, you do, son? He said, yeah. So what do you feel bad about? And the kid said, well, I've been really paying attention lately, and I believe that you love mother more than you love me. And the dad said, you got that right. Does a man love his child the same he loves his mate? Should not. Should not. Are there preferences? Are there superior loves? Are there superior devotions? Yep. But an awful lot of times among men, preferences lead to partialities which open the life to sin. That personal illustration from my life and past with a fellow pastor kind of sets up James 2, 1 to 7. Here we go. My brethren, have not, not, the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Not with, not with, that's imperative. For if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the designer clothing. I did not say gay, and you know why. The King's English is not modern English, and our thoughts concerning the old English word are phenomenally different, so I'm using the word designer. Designer clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do they not blaspheme that worthy name by which ye 
are called? And the answer, of course, is yes, they do. Yes, they do. Oh, yes, they do. We'll stop right there. Father, help us this morning as we begin this new section of practical instruction, surely from James, but more from you as from your spirit through James, placed on the page for our eyes, for our hearts, for our lives in response on this Lord's Day morning. Thank you for evidence, even in the hour preceding this one, of your good hand upon us. And now help us to maximize this morning to the glory of our Lord as we listen to James teach us concerning this matter of evil partiality. We ask in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake, amen. The symbolic lady of justice is depicted as blindfolded because most all people rightly value the principle of an impartial judicial system. Recently in my Bible reading, I'm in Kings and Chronicles, and the sixth king of the Davidic kingdom over Judah was named Jehoshaphat, a name which means Jehovah judges. Indeed, one of Jehoshaphat's positive reforms had to do with the strengthening of the judicial laws and procedures in ancient Judah after a time of departure. Uh, here is the king's executive order to those serving as judges throughout the land of Judah as recorded in 2 Chronicles 19.7. Quote, Wherefore, now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take heed and do it, for there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, nor respect of persons, nor taking gifts. We would say bribes. Uh, that passage of scripture, King Jehoshaphat declared that there is nothing but perfection in God and that God is no respect of persons and that God is not subject to bribery. Like, God, I'll go to church today, all day, if the Lions win. That won't work. That won't work. I can't believe you had that thought. I can't believe you had that thought. Judicial favoritism, prejudice, and partiality has long been recognized as evil. Likewise, favoritism is evil at home and church. Adam and Eve had a favorite son, but Cain proved to be the murderer of his own brother. King David favored his son Absalom, refusing to restrain him righteously, and Absalom proved to be the insurrectionist against his own father. 
favoritism in a family. Should dad favor ma? Should dad be partial to ma? Of course. A thousand times. Of course. But should dad be favored towards a certain son or a certain daughter? No. Family favoritism on the sibling level is an evil thing. Partiality and favoritism in a church family is an evil thing. James, the half-brother and servant of Jesus Christ, continues to write to Jewish believers scattered by persecution, as indicated by the word brethren, here in chapter 2, verse 1. This is the fourth time James has said that he's writing to Christian brethren. Prejudice and partiality are an ongoing reality in every generation and in every society. But the scripture is absolutely clear that the church and the Christian family unit is to be partiality free. This does not mean that the family God has given to you uh, biologically or physically uh, is to not be distinguished uh, uh, between the aspect of them and other peoples in the world or even in the church. The family of God makes distinction between peoples, but it shows no partiality among God's family. That evil is perpetrated when there is indeed favoritism, partiality in a home, favoritism and partiality on the sibling label, uh, sibling level in a church. Uh, that said, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love in honor preferring one another. I am to have a holy preference for God's people in this place. I am to have a holy preference for all God's people in this place. Nothing in my action should say or communicate that there are some people in the church that I like better or love more than others. Partiality in a church is an evil thing. Partiality in a family is an evil thing. And yet most people when looking at other families, can tell which kid is best preferred or favored. The command of James here is clearly directed to the righteous treatment of Christians towards Christians. James is not dealing with societal issues at large, but with family issues among the brethren in Christ. That said, it is impossible not to apply the principle here to all relationships of the believer's life. God does not expect me to treat every boy uh, on earth the way that I treated my own boys in the physical, biological sense of that relationship. I don't treat every person as if they are my son or my daughter or my mother or my father. And yet those are examples used in the Bible for the kind of relationships that you and I are to foster within the church family. 
God instituted the family unit as distinct unto itself from the beginning. This is why God tells a man and a woman coming together in marriage that they must leave father and mother and cleave to one another as a new family unit. One of the greatest problems of relational conflict among extended families that are Christian in our day is in this very realm. That people have the idea that my family, and I'm talking about mine now, involves somebody else but Sherry. It no longer does. My family personally involves Sherry and I. It's the two of us. It's it. Uh, I have an extension of my family in Florida, but that's Justin's family. I have an extension of my family in Ohio, but that's Jason's family. And what does that mean? That means I don't answer to God for that Florida family. I don't answer to God for that Ohio family. And yet I answer to God for this church family because that's the relationship that I have with this church family. But when people say to me, Pastor, did you hear what's going on at this church? Did you hear what's going on at that church? Listen, I didn't, and I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. Couldn't it interest me less in all the world, what they do or how they do it? Why? They're not mine. They're not mine. And right now, you are mine. But there'll come a day when you're not mine. And that's why our love and loyalty, first and foremost, always goes to Christ, always goes to Christ, always goes to Christ. Because even if you don't have a pastor, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Amen to that? I'm just saying, you have to do some thinking as you head into a section like this, that you, you keep the categories, you keep the parameters straight as we move forward. However, God expects us to understand that the new relationship we possess in Christ makes us members of the family of God, children of God, and therefore brothers and sisters in Christ. There is to be something special about the expression of love within the family of God. Clearly, James chapter 2, there was not. In many cases, as James exposes it here, really in verses 1 to 13, although the first section we're starting to work with is 1 to 7. Scholar Ralph Martin says that the language of verses 2 and 3 of James 2, as well as the context, indicates an actual happening in the early church. James probably, he said, probably, I don't know why he said that, probably, witness this tragic event himself. I read that and thought to myself, well, yeah. <laughs> he's not writing about some cartoon. He's not writing about a fantasy. He's talking about the real things that are happening. I don't know why you have to be a scholar to know that. You don't have to be a scholar to know that. I only quoted Ralph so that I could say, we don't have to. <laughs> you don't have to quote Ralph. You can read it for yourself and know that that is what God is saying in this regard. I like what Ken Hughes says, though. Ken Hughes says that upon further thought, James' word picture, James chapter 2, church history, and our own experiences 
chronicle the inconsistent tendency of vibrant Christianity to become discriminatory and given to favoritism. As James drives home the poor rich and the rich poor paradox, he powerfully asserts, listen, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. James demands that his original readers desist from showing partiality within the family of God. James said, stop living out your faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ as a respecter of persons. This command is better understood when you consider the place of the infractions that are cited, the precedent against partiality known in that original audience, and the preeminence of Jesus Christ over the church, as is declared in James chapter 2 and verse 1. Let's take those three Ps in that order, the place, the precedent, and the preeminence. First, the place. In verse 2, you have the word assembly. For if there come into your assembly, uh, the Greek word is synagogi, which gives us the English word synagogue. The word in the original is not a proper noun designating a specific place of Jewish worship, but rather any sort of gathering or place of gathering for the people cited. So who are stated as being addressed in this place, brethren, and where would they be gathering? Answer, the church. They would be assembling in the church. And so James is dealing in James chapter 2 with Christians' treatment of Christians regardless of the specific place or time of their gathering. But whenever Christians gather with Christians, they are to be uniquely cognizant that everybody be treated at the level footing of the cross. And that the people gathering do not give themselves over to favoritism. The New International Commentary makes a pretty good case that the particular reference in verses 2 and 3 here reflects a church disciplinary meeting deciding the case of offense between two Christians, one rich and the other poor. I really don't know about that. I can see it, but I don't know about that. Regardless, I do know that all gatherings of the local church family ought to freely express the love of God to all who are in attendance. There ought to be no partiality, no favoritism, 
shown in the context of the family of God when gathering. Secondly, these Jewish believers uh, of uh, the first century, the original audience, would have been particularly aware of the Old Testament precedent against partiality. Let me show you two scriptures. First, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy and chapter, uh, uh, I'm sorry, let's go first to Leviticus, chapter 19 and verse 15. Then we'll go to Deuteronomy, chapter 10. But first, Leviticus 19 and verse 15, where you have a clear statement of judicial impartiality, or if you will, you have a biblical precedent for the symbol of a blinded lady as representative of law. Leviticus 19.15, Ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. That is a clear statement of the law of God under which the Jewish people were placed at Sinai. And the law speaks of no partiality in judgment. Furthermore, now you can flip with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, in verse 17, you have a clear statement of, again, the pattern of God relative to partiality. Verse 17, Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. There's a whole system of phony baloney theology that says God looked forward in time and saw people like me as having a heart bent towards him, and so God picked me because I was pickable. That is so stupid because the Bible is very clear that God did not save me because he looked ahead and saw that I was something he wanted that God sovereignly selected me in the ages past based upon his own free will. God is not a respecter of persons. I am, oftentimes. You are, oftentimes. But God's not a man that he would act like us. And we better be careful about uh, making our uh, emotions and our patterns be that which somehow is, is saying something about God. But Leviticus and Deuteronomy uh, uh, underscored the truth that in the administration of justice, the guilty is not to escape uh, righteous judgment just because uh, they're poor and easily pitied. Now listen carefully. Under the law of God, a righteous judge could not say, I know you murdered your neighbor, but you 
had a terrible mother, and you grew up without a father, and you lived in poverty, and so I am going to excuse you. No righteous judge under the law of God could excuse the poor man because he had a lousy mother and an absent father and grew up in the ghetto. Furthermore, God said no, not only to that, but God said no easy treatment on the guilty rich because they could do so much good for others with their wealth if not judged under the law. God said no to that. God himself would depict Lady Liberty as a blinded woman, able to impart judgment without partiality. The rule of the justice of God was poor or rich should not matter. James is not dealing with justice in James chapter 2. He's dealing with the family of God under the constraint of the love of God, the very love of God that fulfills the law of God. The rule of the love of God is that rich or poor should not matter. It is a matter of God's law. But more important to you and me is it is the matter of God's own love that all his children be treated one to another without partiality. Favoritism, prejudice, and partiality usually flows along three lines. Here they are. They're not written for you. You'll have to write them down if you want to have them. Number one, people are partial based upon their personal endearments. People are partial based upon ethnicity. People are partial based upon economics. Three things, endearments, ethnicity, economics, endearments, ethnicity, economics. A parent may have a favorite child, even as a pastor may well have a favorite member. But woe to the parent or the pastor that lets that favoritism show in treatment or advantage above others in the family or the church family. When I taught pastoral theology at the Bible college, I warned future pastors of how they could easily harm their own families and how they could easily harm the church family by granting to their own family special privileges not granted to the church family at large, especially concerning church facilities and programs. We all have personal endearments. On earth, on earth, my number one personal endearment is right there. 
she's it. I am absolutely prejudiced for her. I am partial towards her. I prefer her over all of you. She's number one endearment in my life. And that's exactly what God would expect. But I have other preferences, and you have other uh, preferences, and I have endearments, and you have endearments, and you and I, as God's people, have got to be careful about how we express those personal endearments among the family of God. Again, personal endearments into themselves are not a problem, but they become a problem when we don't match the reality of our personal endearments with God's demand for impartiality among the church family, just like impartiality among the sibling level of one's own family. Beware of letting your personal endearments unduly show or dictate in life or ministry. And then the second thing is ethnicity. Now, if you're a mongrel like I am, my son uh, in Ohio took one of those uh, 23andMe things, got it as a Christmas gift, so he took it, and he's always telling me who we're related to, and it's usually an embarrassment, so I don't go there. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, uh, the reality is, is that uh, uh, one thing for sure is that we're a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and basically, uh, I am what I've always thought myself to be, junkyard dog and mongrel. But nonetheless, uh, some people have a very pure uh, uh, heritage, and they know that they're Scottish, or they know that they're Polish. I don't know why that would be a big deal, but... Or they know that they're German. Duh! Uh, ethnicity is often a line of favoritism and prejudice and partiality. And, and oftentimes it, it harmfully flows. I know that growing up in a Polish neighborhood, I always liked to go to Kabasi, uh, to, uh, to Pulaski Hall because the kibasa was coming out the back door while they were dancing in there. Uh, you know, I don't want her, you can have her, she's too fat for me. As they're dancing to that, uh, they're handing out snacks out the back door. I'm sitting there on my banana-seated bike, my Swin banana-seated bike, and I'm taking it in. I mean, I was glad to be Polish that day. It is not uncommon for the world's people to include or exclude others simply on the basis of ethnicity. And I'll just say it so that we can note the gorilla in our world, anti-Semitism. Ethnicity should never be a big deal among the family of God. After all, our capital city, as I read this morning, is not Washington, D.C., but heaven. Ethnicity. Endearments can cause a problem. Ethnicity can cause a problem. And thirdly, economic differences, resources, and experiences 
are a line in which favoritism, prejudice, and partiality harmfully flows. Most professing Christians understand the Creator's claim over all things made. We sing things like, He, God, owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. God is most rich. God is most wealthy and truly wealthy without compare. Amen? When the wealthiest of all the wealthy, God, the creator, in the Son became man for the purpose of salvation, the scriptures describe that action of his incarnation in the terms of poverty, saying, for our sakes, he, God, became poor. Thus we marvel over the height of God's incomprehensible wealth, and we marvel over the depth of our Lord's incomprehensible humbling and sacrifice to save. God is rich. God, for our sakes, became poor. And furthermore, and significant to my point, God has made, God has made among his people on earth both rich and poor. Proverbs 22, 2 says, the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is the maker of them all. Can any rich man say, I did not get these riches from God? Can any more, a poor man that wants to just exercise his soul and become a rich man? The Bible is very clear on these particular issues. Good and godly believers do not all share the same resources. They do not share the same experiences. Economic differences do exist within the church family. And that can be a line along which harm is perpetuated in a local church. It's important that we understand how our endearments and our ethnicity and our economic status could be, could be a problem to the level ground that we've all come to meet God at in the cross. Remember back in the day when 
in the church on the other side of the state, we were looking for youth sponsors, young couple to work with our youth, and a name was forwarded. And the response of our deacons back in that church to that name was, well, uh, uh, that couple, they, they don't have much. Uh, they, don't, uh, they don't have uh, many resources. And uh, I don't think they'd be able to make the kind of expenditures that were necessary to, uh, to, to keep up with the, with the young people in our church. And uh, I was angry with that response in our deacons and told them so because I said to them what you ought to be thinking is how we're going to give the money to them so they can uh, run around with our young people and not have to make it a personal issue because God help us if you got to be secure as men count secure in finances in order to be a youth sponsor you got to be careful about personal endearments, got to be careful. About ethnicity, got to be careful. About economic realities. We are not all the same. Economically. We come at life from very, very different perspectives. And then thirdly, I want to at least introduce to you this morning the thought of the preeminence of Jesus Christ as is stated in verse 1 in a way that is not terribly easy to render in English. I tried to read it with some precision so that you can get the thought, and I think it helps. Let me do that again. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of person. So grammatically, if you connect the word not with with, then you have the basic thought of the verse as far as its demand. But the thing that's in the middle is the most important thing because the thing that's in the middle is the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, which is a statement of the Lord's preeminence. Now, when I hear that part of the verse, when you hear that part of the verse, uh, there's almost no way possible that you and I would easily connect it to where the Jewish crowd hearing James say that would connect it. It's almost impossible for us to hear that the way they heard that. Uh, first of all, I need to tell you that the word glory here is in ap position, not op position, but ap position to the name Lord. Glory and Lord are the same thing in this verse. The Lord is the glory, the glory is the Lord. This was for the original Jewish readers, ready? An unmistakable reference connecting Jesus to the Old Testament presence of God in the cloud of glory. The link James makes between 
the Old Testament Shekinah and the New Testament Savior serves as the authoritative basis for his appeal. It is the preeminence of Christ. It is the shine and the glory of Jesus that is brought to bear most in this section of the Word of God. So let me give you the conclusion to today's sermon, conclusion to next week's sermon, conclusion to the week after that. Here's the conclusion for the next three weeks. Here's the conclusion. The shine and the glory of the Lord Jesus is incompatible with the shabby treatment of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, may we live for Jesus a life that is true. Sometimes that thought takes us to the most profound depths of theological understanding that just makes our, our brains rattle. And yet sometimes, like here in James 2, exactly what it is we're supposed to do is so easy to understand, and yet often so hard to do. And so we pray that you would help us as we continue to study and as we continue to pray that we might live a life after Christ that is true. And bless now as we conclude this next little portion with our chorus of dedication and resolve. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen.